Welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazella Mami. On this week's show, we'll discuss the divisive response to Netflix's The OA. Plus, we're joined by star of One Day at a Time and national treasure Rita Moreno. I'm here with New York Magazine TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hi, Gazelle. Hi, Matt. And Vulture TV columnist Jen Cheney. Hey, Jen. Hello. Hey, hey. <laughs> Welcome back. I mean, actually, we've been back already a week. I can't believe this is the second week. Yeah. <laughs> um, Feels like it's been a year. Yeah. <laughs> so. We've been right here the whole time. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> We're going to talk about the OA in just a moment, but first it's time for this week's prompt. This week's prompt is, what is a show you like that everybody else hates? Matt, why don't you start us off? <laughs> <laughs> it was vinyl. Oh, it was vinyl. right. I'm that, I'm that one person. I feel like you have a lot of vinyl. these, actually. Arrested I actually do have a lot of them. I, I, you season. know, I wrote like a, a yeah. f- close to 2,000 words on Cop Rock for the TV <laughs> book I did with Alan Seppenwall. So, yeah, I do have, I am the patron saint of the sick puppy, yeah. as another critic once put it. Um, but I thought there was, I thought vinyl was fascinating and I thought it was misunderstood in a lot of ways. And I think it was in a weird way, like, yeah, it was kind of a, cl- a kind of a rock and roll clone of Mad Men in some ways. But one thing it had in common with Mad Men was the people who naysayed it, I think, tended to look at the first level of the show and not look at anything else that was going on in the show. Like, I, I think like superficially it was basically rock and roll Mad Men knockoff. Um, but the anger, the, the disgusting, degrading sort of quality of the of the way they portrayed masculinity and that, and the way that it was kind of about the downfall of the white man in a lot of ways, and that was embedded in there in the way that the main character had exploited this black blues musician, and it was sort of like personally reenacting the story of how rock and roll was stolen from African Americans, essentially, and made mm-hmm. commercial. There, this is a lot. This is they were biting off a lot, and maybe they couldn't chew it all. But right. I admired it. I admired. I, I thought there was so much more ambition, so much more um, uh, thought and feeling in that show than almost everyone gave it credit it for. Almost um, too much feeling. I would guess. <laughs> yes, you know. Yeah. I know. I know. No. I. I get it. I. I. The show wasn't for me, but I do think there th- there were sequences that really I thought were kind of beautiful and transcendent a yeah. little bit. And know, I think that it, sequence at the end of the pilot where the uh, where the ballroom is literally collapsing. Yeah. To me, that's one of my favorite Martin Scorsese scenes of all time. Wow. To me, because Scorsese's movies are o- often about, like, what's the worst thing that could happen for this character, and then that's what has to happen. Yeah. And, like, what happens it takes on a metaphorical dimension, <laughs> almost. And, like, here, this is, like, I just, when I saw those cracks appear on the wall, I started laughing. I started laughing. It's like we've lo- we've we've departed the realm of the real here, and we're in dream world. Yeah, and I thought that was awesome. It definitely, you know, it, when it whenever it got dreamy like that is when it was at its best. I, I agree. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. What was yours? Mine. It's the first thing that came to mind is divorce. Because uh, ah. you know Thomas Hayden Church got so much shit from me, from you, and on Twitter there was a lot of you know backlash against him, and I just think. He's so funny on that show. And I wish the show was more like him, if that makes sense. I yeah. wish people were, I think a lot of the criticisms were, I, I think maybe you, this was one of your criticisms that he felt tonally off from the rest of the show. Yeah. But whatever wavelength he's on is the one I wanted the show to be on. <laughs> so <laughs> Where it's a little more deadpan yeah. and kind of dry. And yeah. sort of like, yeah, he's sort of like a turtle. He's kind of like, he remi- his performance reminds me of a turtle 
that is trying to get out of a room and it keeps running into the same wall <laughs> yes. over and over. He and you can sit me. there for hours and go like, that turtle has hit that same yeah. spot 65 times. And to me, it was too much. That yeah. was my, my issue with the performance was not the performance. It was the fact that it was given so much screen time for, for, for what I thought it had to give me, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, it's like if we had a lot less of that performance, I think I would like it more. Right. That was, See, it was more of an issue. For me, it was but more, you wanted more Thomas yeah, I wanted it to be more of a, you know, comedy in that sense, you know, and I just, yeah, I, he really tickled me and I... I was just so sad to see all the like. So this is less of defensive of divorce the show than of Thomas Hayden <laughs> right, Church on right. divorce. I think that's so. That's interesting. I think so. Although I, I I am a fan of the show as well. So, you know, I think there's definitely some tonal issues there. But overall, I thought it was kind of quirky in this Sharon Horgan way that yeah. that that is appealing, you know. And I'm curious to see where they go in season two. Mm. So, Jen, what's yours? This is a hard question for me because I feel like I can find a better answer to what show do you hate that other people love rather than flipping that scenario. Uh, But one that I came up with, and it's an imperfect answer, is The Affair. Because it's imperfect because I don't know that people really hate it that much, but some people have gotten more and more disenchanted with it as it's gone along. And in its third season, I, I do see some problems with it. And one of the key problems is Brendan Fraser. But uh, but I still really like the show and still find it really, really interesting. So I guess my pick would be The Affair. So that's it for this week's prompt. Listeners, if you'd like to weigh in on this week's prompt or suggest one for a future week, email us at tvquestions at vulture.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-504-7673. Next up, we're talking about the OA. We'll be right back. While we were all away for the holidays, a new Netflix show dropped that was kind of unexpected. And it kind of became the thing everyone was talking about over the holidays. And since we didn't get a chance to talk about it then, we wanted to to talk about it now. The OA premiered on Netflix on December 16th, and it kind of became a sleeper hit and if if you don't know much about the show, you should probably not listen to this episode or this segment, at least, because we're going to get into everything. And mm-hmm. it's a pretty spoiler heavy show. Yeah. In fact, I, I was just descri- right. my daughter was asking me, what is this show about? And I said, I don't know if I can even really tell you anything because it's one of those shows. Right. Like, it's like a lost sort of show where you kind of get the bits and pieces as you go along right. and in you just way, you don't know what you're looking at for the first two hours really right in a way maybe it's not even that spoilery because you know we could talk about it but it might not make much sense to you if you haven't seen it so yeah. you probably won't retain the information anyways but either way this would probably be best listened to once you have seen the show uh it's an eight episode season and all the episodes are kind of varying lengths you know, one episode is 30 minutes, some of them are 40, some of them are an hour. And the show follows a girl named Prairie who's been missing for seven years when we meet her under mysterious circumstances. And she was blind when she met, went missing, but when we meet her, she has regained her sight. And we don't yet know why or how that has happened. Uh, and, you know, while a lot of people did really like this show, there was like a pretty large contingent that also hated it. And I thought, you know, we could talk today about why we think this show in particular was so divisive. And just to start us off, I wanted to get a sense of what you guys thought about the show. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, and I mentioned this. I was still working my way through it and we were doing our best of. And I, I boldly said that I thought maybe it would have even been on my best of had I written my best of before I uh, or after I watched the OA. But it is a, it, you're right. It's a very divisive show. What I liked about it is this idea that it's it's about this woman who was blind, isn't anymore, that is constantly blindsiding you with new information, unexpected things, even in terms of form, like you were talking about with how long it is uh, each episode. And I just was completely engrossed by it, even though I, I do see certain problematic elements in it. For example, I think the hardest thing for a lot of people to swallow is the movements, you know, the dance element of this. Uh, as I was watching it, I could see, you know, this is going to be something that people either buy into or they completely satirize. So I, I do understand why some people had a hard time swallowing it. And it's certainly, you know, Matt mentioned Lost a minute ago. And like Lost, it's one of those shows that raises a lot of questions that it doesn't necessarily answer by the end of the first season. Although presumably, hopefully, maybe if they do a second one, it will answer some of them. But yeah, it's 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 a naughty show, but that's kind of what I liked about it. I I, I wasn't as enthused. I, I really wanted to like the show. This is the kind of show that's normally, you know, I call it Matnip. You know, like there's mm-hmm. usually there's no possible way I wouldn't love a show like this, but I didn't. And I had a few issues with it. And one of them was the number one was the storytelling. I I didn't like the way the story was told. I didn't like the structure of the first season. Um, the first episode, in retrospect, felt a bit too much like throat clearing to me. Like once mm-hmm. we got to the second episode, which the second episode is where I really started to have some animosity towards the series because... It's really basically the leading lady and co-creator of the show sitting there verbally telling you everything that happened to her. And they're illustrating it with flashbacks. And I kept sitting there thinking, is there a cinematic way that we could be doing this? Because this is like, you know, and then I went here and then I did this. And oh, and then here are here are some sort of literary observations that I have about what happened to her. And occasionally they'll cut to all the other people in her sort of private, I guess, little miniature X-Men group listening to her and occasionally one of them will go and then what happened and i'm thinking like this is like what you're not supposed to do i mean i know that i I guess large numbers of people loved this show and i don't want to be insulting about it but like (laughs) this was like there was a baseline storytelling competency issue a lot of the time on the show that bothered me it just bugged me it's like Mm -hmm. when i looked at how lost told its story how battlestar galactica told its story a lot of the time how almost any really great show finds a way to tell its story, like a surprising way to tell its story, other than having the character, you know, developing a character, having an elaborate backstory, and then gradually having them dole it out to you in bits and pieces, verbally, verbally. And and the act of parts where you actually see her living are, are basically just uh, flashcards illustrating the verbal story she's telling you. It's like, why isn't this a podcast? I actually that was my that was right. a big issue for me, honestly. And not to take anything away from the production values, which I thought were great. Uh, and also, I had issues with uh, her as the leading lady. I think she's good, but I wanted somebody a little more magnetic. I actually liked it for the very reasons you disliked it, I think. Mm. I think I I really enjoyed that it was a narrative about storytelling, and I didn't need it to be any more com- complex than it was because I felt like they – just in that first episode, I don't know, the way that that episode – works by the end of it you're in russia with her and i just remember feeling like what is this show what Mm -hmm. is going on 
And I just felt so pulled in by the magic of storytelling. And it sounds super cheesy, but I really was drawn in. And I didn't feel like it needed to do too much work to get me there because we were already so um, interested to know about this girl. It already, just by its premise, you're curious who this is. So you're like, okay, she's going to sit down and tell me now. Like, I just want to hear it. I just want her to tell me exactly what happened to her. (laughs) And I guess I just didn't need any, like complicated stylistic moves in order to get me there. Oh, I didn't want it to be complicated or particularly Or not stylistic, complicated, but, but just... You know, I just wanted it to be more... More visual, I, I, more visceral, more... I totally more, get that. You know, I just... Uh, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm normally really allergic to excessive voiceover um, for all the reasons you were just talking about. Yeah. I, I feel like one of the reasons maybe they, they did it this way is because uh, so much of this is about, well, is this what she said happened? Or is this what actually happened? And I think maybe they leaned in too far to the voiceover because they wanted to be clear when we were hearing what Prairie was saying. Yeah. And it also, it's, it's very reminiscent of what they did in, in Sound of My Voice, where different circumstances, but Britt Marling, again, played a character in that movie who is, she's really like this magnetic leader of, of a cult. In the OA, the group isn't really a cult, but in a way it kind of is because kind of they're is, all buying yeah. into what she's saying. Right. Um, so I felt like it was really, um, echoing what they have done before. And now maybe you didn't like sound my voice either. You know, some people didn't, um, I like that. And I like I her, like, I like her in other things. I like her. In other yeah. Things. I just felt like there was, there was a reason why it needed to use the voiceover, even though I do agree that sometimes it may have been a little bit too much, yeah, but I felt like there was a purpose. Uh, it wasn't so much the use of voiceover per se, because some of my favorite, you know, two of my favorite directors are Terrence Malick and, uh, Martin Scorsese, who, really go overboard with the voiceover a lot of the time. So, But it's all a question of how you use it. And and I prefer the kind of voiceover where what is being told to you and what is being shown is somehow at odds. Or one thing right. is sort of, you know, the voiceover is adding something that you can't get from the pictures or the pictures are contradicting the text in some way. And I didn't see that that was what was happening here. This to me felt like what I call pilot voiceover. I mean, I will admit like, you know, some hey, of the writing. Hey, that's my brother John. I haven't seen him in three years. Like that kind of voiceover. There was right. too much of that. Some of the writing I I felt could be a little clunky. And I don't want to fixate but... too much on that on on that aspect of it. But that that was kind of a deal breaker for me. But also, um, this is a show, and I've seen a number. I got to be fair. I've seen a number of shows in the past year that that uh, that I would put under this category, including um, Mr. Robot and Westworld. If these shows had been on the air 10 years ago, I would have gone, holy shit, what a great show. Mm-hmm. You know, like like when I denigrate this show, when I naysay or nitpick this show, it's not because I think it's a terrible show. I don't. It's in relation to the amazing things that are being done all over scripted television right now. You know, yeah. like like this show is good. But and, <laughs> you know, I could say like. But it's no, uh, it's no Atlanta. It's no the girlfriend experience. It's no crazy ex girlfriend. Yeah. But I could list like thirty more shows that it's, it's like, it's just not up to the level. It's not not a show that I want to give another like ten to thirteen hours of my life mm-hmm. to. Right, we're grading on a higher curve than we used right. to. That's, that's definitely true. I, that, that's what I'm I saying. We're that. in AP English now here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, like this is like you've moved up. You've moved up. Things are a little more demanding, and uh, there's more. There's, there's more. It's you got to do more work. You got to do more work to get the same A. That's that's the. I mean, I do think Lost, if it came out now, probably wouldn't make as much of a splash. I don't think it would. I mean, you know, but then you get into the kind of the uh, what's that? You know, the snake swallowing its own tail. It's like you know, a lot of these shows wouldn't exist without Lost. So totally, you know. But but I know what you're saying. Like I look at Lost now, and in fact, I look at Twin Peaks now. 
And I think how would Twin Peaks be received? In fact, my um, we're about to find out. My friend's son, <laughs> who's uh, twelve and a half, just started watching Twin Peaks. I think he's a little too young for it, but um, I watched a lot of amazing stuff that I was too young to see when I was that age, so I, I let it pass. But he was saying like he couldn't believe how cool it was. It was great, it, and it was like, "Where are you?" And he said, "I'm, I'm almost at the uh, I'm almost at the end of season one." And I'm thinking, like, all right, about seven or eight episodes into season two is when you're going to start to get disillusioned. Mm -hmm. Because that's what happens to most people when they watch Twin Peaks, which is not to say that Twin Peaks isn't a great, groundbreaking, still kind of incredible show. It's just that by the standard, the consistency standards that we apply to scripted television now, Mm -hmm. Twin Peaks can't keep up. Right. Twin Peaks is one of those shows where, like, Vulture would write, like, six or seven articles going, what the hell happened to Twin Peaks in season two? Right, right, right. Well, I think people felt that way at the time, too, to be fair. I think they did. I think they did. But I don't think it's as sort of like a take the show out back and put it out of its misery in the way that it is now. Right, right. But Gazelle, like what you were saying before about having this visceral response to the OA, where you were just like, yes. I don't know what's going on, I and I want to know what's happening next. Like That was that was how I felt watching it. I felt too. a visceral response to storytelling that I don't usually feel. And I think there are people who felt that, and there are people who just didn't feel it. And that's right. the and there's difference no between ground. how you responded to the show. I didn't act, I was I was watching with a couple people who didn't like the show as much, so it started to take me out of it mm. as I went on. Yeah. And I'm don't know how I would have responded to the finale, but I've talked to people who were weeping during that finale. And like, mm-hmm. it just, and it didn't do that for me. I, f- I felt talking about the, sh- the school shooting sequence where they stand yeah. up and do the movements. Um, and I, I, I definitely didn't feel, I felt it was, it felt a little hokey for me at that point, but right. I'm curious how I would, I would have felt if I had been watching on my own. I think it was a show I needed to watch alone. I agree with but, you, though, about the what in the hell is going on aspect. Like, that part of it did appeal to me. I, I like that it fully committed to its weirdness. And it you're did, just, you know, it, did, it, did. it just. She's like, in, it's like she's basically in heaven. It's right. like, it's almost like in a weird way, it's like we're watching It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's like <laughs> heaven think- is, heaven is a room with a, some kind of a star patterned. It's like they're in the star room or the galaxy room, except, you know, the role of Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life is played right. by this character out of, you know, Shahar- Scheherazade. Right, right. Basically, it's, it's, uh, it's a weird yeah. show. And, you know, and even just the environments, like that whole basement setup where they're in those glass, mm-hmm. you know, enclosed, uh, rooms so it's like sort of silence of the lambs but like far more sophisticated and uh there was something just kind of engrossing to me about that just the the way that they dreamed that up i think my favorite episode not my favorite it actually the the one that affected me the most was the one where hap takes homer to cuba and i thought that emery cohen's performance in that was just incredible just mm-hmm. I wasn't as into, you know, the sex scene at the end where they broadcast the audio to everybody. Right. That I could have skipped. Yeah. But I think those scenes where he's he's in the strange place and like he's been locked in a cage for years and he doesn't know how to be a human anymore. I thought it was just Well, those very are my favorite disturbing. parts of the show. My favorite parts of the show are when they find a way, they find a visual or auditory way into an emotion. Mm-hmm. And like little moments like when she convinces her captor to take her upstairs into the kitchen so that she can feel the sun on her face. Mm-hmm. There's this close-up. There's a very long close-up mm-hmm. of her with the sun on her face. And the way the scene is lit is quite beautiful because as soon as she comes up those stairs, the the image is brighter 
and more yellow, almost a sunflower yellow than anything you've seen up to this point. So it's kind of expressionistic by then. Mm-hmm. And they just mm-hmm. stay on her face. They just stay on her face for a very long time by TV standards. And I liked that. And I liked the stuff that involved her hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, where you're 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 hearing what's happening, you're staying on her face, and you're here like when you hear when when the guy takes her down into that uh, dungeon basement, whatever it is, for the and, first time, for the first time, yeah. and he brings her in and sits her down. The camera stays on her in close up, and yeah. you know from the backdrop that there's trouble. Yeah, oh, you know that this is not this chills. is not a bedroom. Yeah. This is some other horrible thing. And but the camera doesn't pull back to give you a wide shot. It stays in close up on her, and you hear the sound of a door, an obviously mechanical electronic prison type door locking, and you know what happened to her. And I wanted to see like if the entire show had been as good as moments like that, I would right. be here raving about how great it is. I felt like they found mm-hmm. they found their greatness once right. or twice, where I would go like, you know what, you got it. This is great. But there was there was a lot of it where I felt like it was like it was good. Mm-hmm. It was okay. Yeah. But it's like we're talking I, about. I get that. You know, good is the mm-hmm. new bad because the level is so high now. Right. And then, you know, as right. you mentioned, Jen, the movements were a big source of contention for people. <laughs> like you either accepted them or you didn't. And for me, I accepted them. I didn't want to, I didn't want to take this show too literally where mm-hmm. I was criticizing every little thing just because it's a little bit goofy. Mm-hmm. But I think. Yeah, I don't know what Matt and Jen, what your thoughts on the movements were. If if they if they if that was kind of the point where you were like, okay, <laughs> this show is okay. So just to, just to be clear, you're you're sitting across the table from somebody who thinks that Terrence Malick has never made a bad movie. Okay, okay, so that's my <laughs> all right. Like, I, I got no problem. No problem. I feel like people, a lot of people had who were actually with the show, and then it was that school shooting scene that really. Like they they were not with it anymore after that. And maybe it was partly because of the movements, you know, being used in that context. Some people were very offended by that. And I think some people are just offended by the notion of of depicting a school shooting period. I kind of felt that way. Oh, I was I was going to say I I loved Alex Jung wrote a piece for us about the gentle queerness of the show and just how it emphasizes chosen family over your given family. And he kind of gets into the movements as a parallel to what drag can be. And then he gets into how specifically it's used in that final sequence and that shows the kind of the power of movement and dance in this way that can feel really cheesy, but is also kind of really cool when you think about it. I I wanted to read an (laughs) an excerpt from his piece. He said, many critics who pan the show seem to take too much at face value. They couldn't get over the notion that a response to violence could be contemporary dance moves. Indeed, it requires a leap of faith, a belief that art has a higher purpose and function beyond aesthetics. It is less about whether there are actually other dimensions, but that these movements allowed Prairie and her fellow prisoners to reclaim their bodies and create a space that their captor could never control. It is survivalist art. Which I I found after I read that, it gave me a new perspective on the ending that I didn't feel as I was watching it. But I, I like the idea of it. I don't think it got there to me in the execution necessarily. Yeah, it was the execution. But, it, was, it wasn't the idea. It was the execution. Right. For me. But I don't think that the fundamental idea of the movements is a flawed one, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wrote a piece about it where because my initial response to it was like, I don't know how to feel about this. And then I watched it again and I started thinking about it more. And I think you're right that the idea, the ideas that are embedded in it maybe are better than the execution. But the reason I wasn't as offended as I might otherwise have been by it being a school shooting was that I just, I thought about Prairie, if you believe at all that she was in that bus crash um, or that something happened to her where some other children died and she lived, 
that she would have some impulse to want to save children. And then I thought, well, if you were going to save children in 2016 from, from a circumstance, what would be the first thing you'd want to save them from? And as someone with a child, I would say no violence in their schools, you know, like that would, that would be where my mind would go. And so I, while I do understand why some people found that off-putting and inappropriate, I also understood how they walked that path. Um, And I thought relative to, for example, like the way American Horror Story depicted in season one, a school shooting, this was done with more taste for sure. Um, But, but I do get that it's, it is problematic for people. Absolutely. It's problematic, but only in the sense that um, I think if the, uh, I think they'd handle it better than most. They handle it better than say American Horror Story or Glee or Sons of Anarchy did one. It often feels like something they just shouldn't even go there. Like I, I think, I think a lot of artists are not up to the level morally or aesthetically to go there in the way that like you should leave the Holocaust alone. It's mm-hmm. like on that level mm-hmm. for me, school shootings. It's like it's instant power, and it's very rarely earned. Um, and I think what would have made it better for me is if we had somebody in charge of the look, the sound of the show, who was a poet and slightly off their rocker. Like somebody like like a David Lynch or a Jane Campion, or even a uh, like a like a Matthew Weiner, somebody mm-hmm. somebody who can really construct kind of a dream space around it, so that what you're looking at and you're listening, what you're listening to, somehow supports the the ridiculousness of what's happening. Of yeah, the that's true. That happening, you know. So you so you're not taking it literally anymore. Like if you, right. if you make something completely ridiculous to the point where it becomes figurative, then suddenly you're having a dream and plausibility doesn't matter. Taste doesn't even matter anymore. Nobody looks at a David Lynch movie and goes, I don't like it. It's in poor taste. Right. You know, you know what taste I mean? Taste is out the window. Well, somebody, somebody, it's somebody might, on the table but they anymore. wouldn't be. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, just make it, make it a lot more dreamlike and bring in Julie Cruz. <laughs> we'll be back in a minute with Rita Moreno. This is it. This is life, the one you get to go and have a ball. This is it. Straight ahead and rest assured. Rita Moreno stars in Norman Lear's One Day at a Time, an excellent new Netflix series that follows a Cuban American family living in Echo Park. Moreno herself is a living legend. The star of West Side Story, Singing in the Rain, and countless other films and TV shows. She's one of the few people who's won an Oscar, Emmy, Grammy, and Tony. That's right, she has an EGOT. We are so thrilled to have Rita Moreno here with us today. Rita, thank you so much for joining us. I am delighted. (laughs) Thank you. So I thought we could just jump right in to talking about One Day at a Time. On on this show, you play Lydia. She's the spunky grandmother to... Uh, is there a mother. grandmother that isn't spunky on television? I, that's a good question. <laughs> is there such a creature? <laughs> you didn't seem that spunky to me. You seemed, you seemed fierce to me. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's she is good. fierce. Yeah. That's me. Yeah, good. And I'm doing and, my mom's accent, so really it's all funny. of the family. <laughs> and really, really oh, funny. That's a cliche, isn't it? Don't all the, all the family. It is. <laughs> I'm sorry, you were saying? No, and, and your character is just so genuinely funny, which I think... Well, she's because she's so unreasonable. <laughs> I love that. I love playing people. I love playing people who don't have a sense of humor, for instance. There's nothing funnier to me than a person with no sense of humor. Do you think she knows that she's funny? Oh, no. She thinks she's charming. She, I mean, she thinks, quite a, she thinks a lot of herself. She's vain. Mm-hmm. She's uh, theatrical. 
She's dramatic. Uh, she's big. I can't imagine why they gave me this role. <laughs> I just, it's you know, fun. who would have sunk? <laughs> it's fun. It's fun to see. It's fun I to love see it. You know, part. every actor in the world would kill to have this part. Well, it's it's the it's you're the you're. You, it's, she's you the voice your, of she's the voice of unreason. She's just the voice of unreason. That's right. <laughs> it's a, how can you tell us about how you how the. You got this role. It sounds like they had you in mind from the beginning. Apparently, uh, apparently, when when uh, Norman got the idea of uh, doing the show, which was brilliant, by the way, and it was thought of by his young partner Mm -hmm. Brent Miller. The first thing he said was, "The first person I want is Rita Moreno," which is interesting because I believe that in the original show, the grandmother had not a great deal to do mm-hmm. that was intermittent mm-hmm. not even reoccurring mm-hmm. and um and I, I i ran into him at a uh of course a political fundraising dinner and we sat at the same table and he said i want you in the show i'm going to do i'm coming back to television and i literally said okay and then i said what is it <laughs> <laughs> well you know those are two magic words norman lear he's going to do television again you Bet your ass I'm going to be interested. <laughs> he's an amazing person. Oh, I, he's I, astonishing. I did a long interview with him uh, late last year, and uh, I don't believe I've ever felt more carefully and probingly listened to than when I was interviewing that man. Yeah. I really like the way he looks at you. Mm-hmm. It's unreal. Yeah. It's unreal. He's he's, uh, he's just very, very uh, unique. He's very different from any from most producers that you would meet in, in, in uh Hollywood. He is. He's very a very considered speaker. Yes. Uh, he really considers what he has to say, and uh, and with that in mind, he he listens very carefully to people uh, who speak with him, especially when he's doing interviews. He's a remarkable man. He's ninety four now, so we are the old farts <laughs> in in this production. He says, <laughs> he says we're peer farts. <laughs> That's great. And and. Uh, I am so proud to even have been asked. Truly, I'm very flattered and delighted. And uh, we really are like peanut butter and jelly, bread and butter. It's it's really great just to see you give this performance that is such a performance. It's such a performance, <laughs> and like like you don't just enter, you enter. Oh yes, yes. And like some <laughs> of these some of these uh, uh, these pauses before you reply. To people, like when you're sitting on the couch with your grandmother. And, and, and I, I always sort of di- try to digest what they're saying. I, the character does. Yes, yes. And you're sitting on the couch with uh, with, uh, with your granddaughter. Right. And you tell the story about how you left Cuba when, in 1958. Right. With, uh, with not speaking English, no money, without your family. And she says, you're, how many times are you going to go to this well? And you say, they took, they took my well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is political and it's passionate and it's emotional. And those things sort of come out of sim- seemingly out of the ether. You don't expect a lot of what you hear in uh, in this show, do you? No. I mean, there's surprise after surprise after surprise. I, I was curious, like, how much of the the backstory about Lydia came to be once you were attached to the project? Like, she's a dancer, for instance, and clearly that is tailor made for you. Was that always on the page, or did you bring that to the well, table? Uh, surprise, surprise. Uh, uh, Gloria Calderon, our other head writer, there's a, a Cuban woman, mm-hmm. uh, and there's Mike Royce. Those are the two head writers. Gloria's mother was a dancer, and to my oh. absolute astonishment, she played castanets. Well, I was a Spanish dancer. Wow. So when Gloria had this part, 
Yeah, well, she had a particular episode in mind about how, uh, I'm sure you saw it, how Lydia came to this country. Uh, and there's a little bit where I'm supposed to dance. Yes. And I said, you're not going <laughs> to believe this, but I play the castanets. I still do, because I still do concerts and stuff. And I do several Spanish numbers, and I play the castanets. I mean, whoop. <laughs> her mother almost peed in her pants. <laughs> she couldn't believe. Oh, I always have people peeing in their pants. That, that for me, means, wow. It's more fun than saying, wow. <laughs> but I'm playing her mom. And I, I'm playing my mom because the accent is definitely my mother's. Things like, oh, I found that on the YouTube. <laughs> I mean, I I love that accent. It makes me yeah. laugh. Well, yeah, I am it, curious about the accent specifically. You know, you've you've talked in the past about how you had to do a lot of accents in oh, a way yeah. that felt degrading. But this is how did it feel doing it this time? Well, but this time I'm playing a legitimate character. Right, right. I'm not playing one of those stereotypical Indian maidens. You know mm -hmm. what I used to call the dusky maiden roles. Right. That I played in so many films and TV and stuff in the, in the past. But uh, I adore playing this woman. And she, you know, she just brings out the crazy in me and the dramatic and the theatrical. I mean, if two people were, two characters were ever made for each other, it's Rita Moreno <laughs> and Lydia. Yes. I love doing her. And I love her unreasonableness. Because she just she's so convinced she's right. It's ridiculous. I was going to say though, in her mind, she's completely reasonable. Oh, of course. And everyone else is. Of course. Off their. Rocker. And you know what I did ask for? I asked the writers when I was talking to them on the phone initially before there was a even a script. I said I'd like her to be sexual, mm -hmm. uh, because you don't see that. Once people turn a certain age, that sort of gets completely ignored by writers, and it's a shame. And I've always been a very sexual person. Doesn't mean that I'm going around, you know, feeling my breasts and, you know, pressing myself against men and stuff. But I'm a sexual being. And uh, I'm 85 and I'm still a sexual being or a sensual being. And that appealed to them. They like that. And of course, the audience loves that. Yeah. Including, by the way, the younger people. Because I think unconsciously they see there's hope mm -hmm. that it doesn't just all suddenly go away. Your ovaries don't turn to dust, you know, overnight simply because you can no longer conceive. But it doesn't mean that you don't have uh, sexual allure or uh, or or yearnings. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in Lydia's case, of course, she goes so far. She this woman is shameless. She will flirt with a fence post. <laughs> <laughs> She, and she has absolutely, she's, you know, she couldn't care less. It's a fence pose. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> it looked like a guy to me. The, pre, the presentation, though, is different than when other uh, uh, characters over, say, 60 or so are presented as being sexual. It's a joke. Yeah. It's meant to be, it's, it's funny. It's meant to draw laughs from the audience because of the presumption that that would not happen. Exactly. You know, and but it, that's not what this is. Not this is more. At this all. is like more just a character trait. Oh, absolutely. She's uh, and uh, and she thinks she's swell. I mean, I love yeah. that about her. And you are, and even more. <laughs> like, I don't think any of the other characters are portrayed particularly. Like, you, you are the most sexual character on the show. Oh, I mean, no. So there's no, there's and nothing that's else happening. What's like so that. delicious? I am the sexual. Yeah, I, I, I represent sexuality. Exactly in this, in this world, it's amazing. I mean, when Isabella says to me, "Do you really want to put out that ad?" 
<laughs> and you know the, the the writers found this picture of me, this sexy, sexy pinup picture of me when I was much younger, which he's spreading around the neighborhood. <laughs> Remember that yes. episode? Yeah, <laughs> I love that. There's also, you know, you one of the running jokes on the show is how you always wear makeup. You oh, yes. even sleep in it. She's Cuban. And there's an amazing scene where you bond with your granddaughter. Wasn't that Elena. a wonderful it's an scene amazing where she you, doesn't wear, you don't makeup? wear makeup? And I'm just wondering if you could talk to us about filming that scene. And have you ever done a, a scene with no makeup on? No, on? I never oh. have. And um, I was absolutely very happy to do it. Uh, maybe it's my age or something, but uh, I know I look good. So, you know, I'm not going to look like another person suddenly because I don't have makeup on. Mm -hmm. Same hair, same person. And I just found it so touching. But of love, but here's where a very moving and touching scene turns into comedy at the end when the, the, the granddaughter says to her, wait a minute, you said you're not wearing makeup. Jazz. <laughs> she says, but aren't you wearing mascara? No. And she <laughs> runs out of the room. So, so it's good. still a cheat. She's wearing mascara. <laughs> oh, I love her. I love her because she's also, because of her vanity and all that, she's very vulnerable. Yeah, She's really very vulnerable. I mean, she victimizes herself sometimes. Yeah. I adore her. And, you know, everybody on the set loves her as her. I say talk about her as though she actually exists because she does. Yes. There's Rita, and then there's uh, there's uh, Lydia. You have this really powerful scene where you talk about coming to America oh, and leaving your, your sister behind in Cuba. That just tears, you know. Well, let me tell and you I was... something. I couldn't stop crying, and and uh, little by little, uh, first one writer came to me, then the Gloria came to me. You're peaking too soon. You're you know you're mm. almost sobbing, and I said. I can't help it. This is so moving to me that suddenly it's Rita listening to Lydia and getting moved by it. And I really had to control myself. I really had to control myself. It was a part when we did like take four when I was sobbing. I had read that you, you came over from Puerto Rico when you were five on a, on a boat and your, That's right. your brother was, was, my brother was left was behind, left behind. And, uh, with the intention that? that he was supposed to come mm -hmm. at a later day because my mom couldn't afford two of us and she never i never saw him again wow it's quite a story read my book <laughs> i'll read it soon because i think it's going out of print we i actually just ordered a copy yesterday oh, okay so. <laughs> so it's still available yes, okay it's still on amazon but no i mean how was that was that something you drew on for this scene or were you were you fully lydia in that no scene? you know i was fully lydia i was i was Listening as Rita, I was listening to what R Lydia had to say and how painful this was for her and her sister. I mean, that's the killer when her sister says, "Well, you know, I'll be there in a few months," and then she dies. And and Lydia never quite understood how that happened. It's heartbreaking, and uh, I know a couple of the reviewers said that they hope they see a little more of that mm -hmm. uh, of that part of her life. Because that's what makes a, a Lear show so extraordinary. You know, it's I was going to say, moments. it's that it's that ability to move. It's between, Chekhov. Yes, between very broad, almost farcical at times. That's just absolutely silly. Sometimes, like All in the Family was all in the absolutely family, Maude, silly. The Jefferson's Good Times. They yeah. all did that. They yeah. all did that. I mean, Schneider is just absolutely silly, ridiculous. 
Yeah. But then there's always these moments. That is so Lear. There's some things that are very Norman Lear. The other thing that is extraordinary is um, that we do very long scenes. Yes. Now, a lot of people aren't aware of that. Uh, sometimes critics are. But that's very deliberate. He doesn't want these choppy, ha-ha, jokey scenes where you chop no. from one scene to another scene to another scene to another set, that kind of thing. He loves the one set It's like a idea. theater. It's like theater. It's like theater, a and lot of it. he adores theater. He loves yeah. theater. And let me tell you, more than one director who's come onto our set will say something like, oh, my God, that's a 20-page scene. Mm-hmm. And they're suddenly thinking, all right, wait a minute, I have four cameras. Well, they really have to do some thinking about how to shoot this. But it's the continuity that I think engages people. Yes, and it's the emotional continuity. Precisely. You know, not just of time, but of the feelings of the characters. And also, I love the idea that the entire 13 episodes are all based on the eventual episode where the quinceañera mm-hmm. actually comes to fruition. Yes, that was, that was striking as well. Line. Yeah. Yeah. The fact yeah. That, that you know most sitcoms you, you get, never get that. You get like twenty two episodes, and they're all somewhat self contained. And here, because right. of the Netflix model, they're releasing it all at once, and so they can plant yeah. the seeds of the finale in the first episode. And rather than waiting a year to right. experience it, it might just be a few days if you're binge watching. Yeah, but you know, as a person who's who's not watched much streaming stuff, I was appalled. That this thing wasn't going to go on the air as soon as we were done. <laughs> and I kept saying to Norman, don't you understand? The little boy's voice is going to change. Norman. <laughs> and, you know, and he said that I really worried him. He said, oh, my God, that's right. <laughs> I never thought of that. I said, well, think about it. Talk to Netflix. We need a second season. I, I, I suspect I, you'll get one. I can't imagine. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise. I want to get my character involved in politics. Ooh, Local like, politics. Oh, I can. Oh, see can that. I explain this yeah, a little bit? Please. We have time. Okay. Yes, please. It's an idea I had about something I saw in a newspaper during the shoot of this first season, and I read a story about a Hispanic woman. I think it was in New York. Might have been Philadelphia, uh, who tried to get involved in very, very local politics, you know, city council stuff like that. Who was made fun of was insulted for her accent, which she had. She was a Hispanic woman, and they made fun of the way she dressed and all that kind of stuff. And as we know, Lydia is a little bit theatrical in the way she dresses. And I brought this idea to the writers and to Norman, and they loved it. Uh, We could do that literally as a through line for her whole second season where she's trying to get involved in local because she's upset about something. Yes. And because of her theatricality and, and, and her the way she mispronounces words sometimes, <laughs> it's very easy to make fun of someone yeah. like that. And when she sees that she's not taken seriously, it can turn into one of those amazing dramatic moments that occur in every single episode of this uh, series. I yeah, and she that. could also, being a politician, she if she's a natural politician, she could turn that to her advantage. Well, you know, I can see her flirting and maybe at the wrong guy. Yeah, I've always admired you. You've always struck me as a very joyful and optimistic person. And I think we're at a moment in this country in particular where a lot of people may be struggling to feel optimistic. So I'm just wondering how it is that you stay so optimistic and so energized every day. You know, you nailed me. You're absolutely right. In fact, speaking of Marlon, he said to me one day, you know, you are the most, you are so optimistic as ridiculous. I've never known anyone as optimistic as you. He says, you conjure a picture of a, a man 
uh, a park attendant with a stick in his hand and a nail at the end of the stick picking up picking up stuff. He says, only you go around picking up hope and putting it into your little brown paper bag, mm. which is rather sweet. And he's right. Mm. I've, yes, that's my nature. I am joyful. And, you know, with my career and my life going this way at 85, my God, I don't dare complain about a hangnail. Everything <laughs> is so spectacular. I couldn't even, yeah, I, I got to say when I, I looked up your, I, I didn't know, I didn't know how old you were. And I looked at went, that can't be right. Oh, that yeah. Right? It's like you and Clint Eastwood. Yeah. I don't have as many wrinkles, thank no. God. <laughs> I mean, that would not be a good thing. <laughs> it's them Puerto Rican jeans. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, I wake up humming, by the way, to continue with this. Yeah, no. I am so, I'm so happy. I'm the happiest, one of the happiest people I know. I truly am. And it's genuine. Well, you can tell that. The air, is, the air is humming. Yeah, yeah. the air is humming. <laughs> Something great is coming. Who knows? Well, that's such a great song. Wow. Do you ever get tired of talking about West Side Story? No, of course not. My gosh. That gave me world fame. It got me these two astonishing awards and a kind of a legacy. Yeah. Because I think long after I'm gone, that film will always be very special. If I could ask something about West Side Story, actually, mm -hmm. just because one thing that you've been outspoken about with that is, you know, how they had you wear, everyone wear a brown makeup for that film. Oh, we all had one shade. You all had all one shade. All the sharks had one shade. And I, I feel like that debate is so hot right now where people are talking a lot about whitewashing and yellow face. And these are things you were, you've been talking about for years does it, are you engaging much with the debate that's happening right now? And I'm just curious. Well, well, with respect to what? Just, it feels like in the last year, you know, people have been talking about it a lot more this, in this the sense about that, what? About well, what? the idea about that, uh, color, like, no, just the idea that people that are of a particular, um, uh, national existence, yes. really. I mean, yeah. like that, that, uh, uh, um, you know, Transsexual characters should not be played by uh, right. straight, st biologically straight male actors. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you shouldn't have um, a Korean person playing a Japanese person. That you shouldn't have a white person playing a Cuban. That's a very naughty issue. Mm. Yes, very mm -hmm. naughty. Because I'm saying this. I'll tell you an interesting little uh, story that's apocryphal. When I was uh, doing the Ritz before we opened on Broadway. The Ritz is a play by Terence McNally, mm -hmm. which takes place in a gay Turkish bath. You won a Tony for that. Correct? Yes, right. Uh, we had a gay person playing a gay person, a guy. And he just wasn't working out. And they had auditioned a lot of gay people at that time, because obviously Terence McNally wanted it to be as accurate as possible and, and, and authentic. And they finally had to fire him. And... They couldn't find a gay person to play this gay character. And I remember, I think it was Terrence who asked me, what are you supposed to post? Why is this happening? And I said, gee, it's so obvious to me. He's been in the closet for so long. He doesn't know how to be gay in a public way. And I think that's, that's, that happens with people. And, you know, if you have the right transsexual who is a good actor, Go for it, of course. But I don't know how many transsexual people there are at this moment in time the situation, you know, who, can, who can pull it off. The situation is improving. 
yeah. the situation is improving. But, but again, I think it's, it's more, a very I, naughty issue. It is. It's more of a political and ideological kind of point of view. And it even extends to things like, you know, a good friend of mine uh, recently uh, wrote about this. He's uh, handicapped, and he was writing about, he was saying, look, there have been some great performances by um, able-bodied people playing people with handicaps, people in wheelchairs and so forth, mm -hmm. uh, paralyzed, whatever. Um, but let's stop and actually have actors who use wheelchairs play these parts. Mm -hmm. why, are we, why are we continuing to have people who are not handicapped playing handicapped people? Mm -hmm. And, of course, um, much controversy ensued as a result of, of this course. piece. But What happened? It, I'm curious. I don't know. I'm kind of I, – I, I go back and forth on it, but ultimately I think that I'm on his side on this. Only because not to well, say that – Well, I agree. That, I agree. You know, like if you could find someone equal, who is a terrific actor, yes. actress, who is a transsexual or who is handicapped – Absolutely. I think it's we need to open these doors are barely ajar for I mean, these kind of uh, you're, you're performers. Playing, you're right? playing a Cuban you're Puerto Rican and you're playing yes. a Cuban person. So mm -hmm. this obviously I mean you can take it to the you know the nth degree, exactly. You could. I mean I wonder if that ever came up. No, yeah. of course no. not. I'm an actress. Yeah. You know, and, and I am Latina. And by the way, you're closer all of than us... Al Pacino. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> oh yes, I think so. I think so definitely. <laughs> His accent was not thrilling. I must say, and I love him. I love him. But that accent was not thrilling. Yeah. He was a, was a good effort, but no. <laughs> no, thank you very much. No, thank you. Oh, my God. I never thought I'd see Rita Moreno doing Scarface. <laughs> This is a highlight of my life. I just want to go on record Such and say that. a great that. actor. I do want to make it clear that I just adore him. Yes. You know, I'm going back to to Brando, and you know, you've been very open about your your private life and your memoir, mm -hmm. and your your eight year long affair with him. I'm curious how you think about celebrity culture and how it's changed because everything is so public now. Did you did it feel like just how much easy how much easier was it to keep things private back then? If, oh, if you it was wanted much to? easier. I mean, you know, people for the longest time didn't even know that Marlon and I were seeing each other. He was a, an absolute lunatic about that, an absolute lunatic. And we went out very little. We were always going to little obscure restaurants. Uh, it was always meals. But we rarely, rarely, I remember we went once to the theater, and it was he never wanted to do it again because the press just in it, we were sitting. There is an amazing photo of me and Marlon sitting next to each other and Marlon sticking his middle finger in front of his face so that they couldn't publish the picture. Wow. <laughs> and that wouldn't stop them now. And <laughs> the look on my face was absolutely shocked. I was shocked and I was offended. I was a very innocent young woman. And there's this picture and you know what they did? They retouched it. And it wasn't there in the, in the, in the newspaper, oh but the picture was there. In the newspaper the next day, and I someone found the photo for me, with his finger showing, which and, and my eyes were as big as saucers looking at him, saying, "I can't believe this is happening." <laughs> who was who was your 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 crew in Hollywood at the time? Did you have like a group of people that you tended to? Hang who was out your? With? Did you have yeah. a Rat Pack? Yeah, exactly. Who was your? Not, group? A, not at all. No, yeah. not at all. I had very very few friends. Uh, I never had an easy time making friends in the past uh, for many reasons. Uh, I didn't go into therapy for nothing. 
Mm. I, I, I came up, I grew up as a child who felt she was uh, very inferior to everybody else. My early experiences were of, as a very young child, being called spick and garlic mouth. And even at a time when I didn't understand the language, I knew that was bad because of the looks on their faces, the expressions on the faces of these usually young boys, you know, gangs and stuff. So I, 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 did, I did live in those mean streets. And I grew up thinking that I had very little value. And it's not something that I felt I could share with my mom. So it was all inside me. Yeah. And it wasn't until I went into therapy, and it was the wacko who told me I needed therapy. It was Marlon. Mm. He said, you, you need therapy. <laughs> I love the irony of that. <laughs> right. he, was always, he was always very, very open to this idea that um, masculinity was kind of a facade. And I actually read some interviews like as early as the 60s when he talked about that. Yeah, but he had, he had the same problem. Yeah, that's what's interesting. That's about what's it. interesting. He about was so it. he was so uh, macho, but also so sort of vulnerable. Yeah, he and had he up. had real macho problems. Absolutely, I had a scene with him in a, a movie called The Night of the Following Day, where he played lovers. This is after the fact, by the way. I already had my daughter, my little girl, and uh, there was a scene where uh, my character jealously confronts him because she thought he spent the night with another woman. And, um, by the way, both, we both wore blonde wigs and, uh, I had to smack, slap him and I couldn't, I have a real hard, very hard time hurting people. I, I just, I really had, it happened with Faye Dunaway too. I was supposed to slap her and I couldn't do it and do it until I was goaded into it. And Marlon said, you gotta do it. He says, I'll be fine. Look at your size. Look at me. You gotta do it. And we rehearsed it. We improvised on the scene. And finally, I was ready to do it. I get to do the smack, and I whacked him ah. a good one. Well, like like I was supposed to. And I think this is in my book. Yeah, I think so. Uh, his hairline went back an inch. <laughs> <laughs> he looked feral. He looked like an animal. Mm. He looked threatened and absolutely frightened. And he put his arms up in front of his face. And I, and he slapped me back so hard that I now know what they mean when they say I saw stars. I saw stars. Wow. I mean, he really just punched my face. Oh my no, it was an open hand, but it was, he was strong. And he used to work out. And when that happened, that, all the pond scum came to the surface mm -hmm. of our relationship, even though it had been over for years. And I attacked him back. Oh my God. It's on film. You can see it. The, the director just loved it, of course. And I was screaming and crying and so that's yelling not, at him. So that part of it's not acting. No. Oh my God. No. And my husband was with me. We were in Le Touquet, France, and uh, my little girl. And I said to he said, How did it go today? I said, Oh, it was bad. And I told him what happened. And uh, when the rushes came up, the dailies, to see the scene, I said, I, I can't go see that. I'm just too embarrassed and I feel humiliated. I said, would you go? And my husband, this wonderful man, went to see it. He came back and I said, well, and he said, wow, you two are such good actors. <laughs> <laughs> How about that That's for a amazing. husband, huh? <laughs> what an amazing guy Lenny was. Yeah. Well, so, but... uh 
I don't know. How did we get started on this? I, I don't know, but that's an amazing story. It is. Actually. <laughs> yeah. And I know but you, you started talking oh, about, about celebrity all of, culture. All of, well, maybe. no, but you also started talking about all of us sharks in West Side Story had to have the same color makeup. Yes. And uh, this is another interesting little anecdote. And one day I got so sick of because it was it's hard to put very, very dark makeup on lighter skin. I'm not saying white, but lighter because you get streaks. You can see the lighter skin underneath. So he would put it on really thick. And I said, I just hate this color. And I said, uh, you know, Puerto Ricans are many colors. We are Spanish. We're French. We're Taino Indian. We're all kinds of things. We're almost black, some of us. And he said, what are you, racist? Huh. Isn't that amazing? Wow. I, I, he, I was so taken aback, I had no answer. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I I just also have to ask, um, you know, because Debbie Reynolds passed away recently, yeah. and you worked with her on Singing in the Rain. I did. I'm curious if you have what you remember about working with her. And, uh, yeah. Well, she was a kid. I mean, she really was a kid. I was a kid. I was, what, 18? And I think Debbie was 17. Uh, I think I've always been a year older than she was. And we were contract players, and she got the role, the plum role. And we became kind of friends, and uh, she was darling. But, you know, life happens. And uh, I just saw an interview with uh, Fisher Stevens, is that his name? Mm -hmm. Who did a a docu on them, and he's apparently, it was this dreadful love-hate relationship. I don't even know it was love so much as dependency. Right. You know, codependent Mm -hmm. people. And I don't know how much love actually had to do with it, more need than, uh, it was it's so sad. It's so sad. She had been ill this year. I saw an interview, I heard an interview with uh, Terry Gross mm-hmm. on public uh, radio, and uh, Carrie, this was a month ago, yeah. Carrie was talking about how ill she'd been. She'd had several strokes. Mm-hmm. And when, right. when her death uh, took place, uh, Debbie was in very, very bad shape. Anyway, and I would imagine that's the last thing she needed to hear. Mm. It's, it's just horribly tragic. Mm. But you know, who knows what kind of mom Debbie was? Right. right. I, I interviewed her about 20 years ago, and my most vivid memory of it was I wore a suit and tie to the interview. And as soon as I got in the room, she said, she told me my tie was crooked. <laughs> and she insisted that I fix it before the interview continued. <laughs> And I said, it doesn't, I said, it's not a big deal to me. And she said, honey, I know it doesn't bother you, but it's going to bother me. <laughs> Interesting. That's amazing. Wow. Man. Oh, my God. Wow. When you look back over the long arc of the entertainment world that you've experienced, are there any particular lessons that you learned that stuck, that really stuck? You know, there's one you? lesson I learned, but it was in group therapy. Hmm. Interestingly enough, but it's a very, it's an earned lesson and one that I think is very valuable that I I like to uh, impart and share with people. And it's this, particularly for people like myself who are uh, essentially, there's always some narcissism. Come on, you know, we're actors. We love the attention. We love the applause. We sure don't like to be rejected. And the one thing I really learned and learned well in group therapy was that you don't die if someone doesn't like you because there's always someone in group therapy who's going to hate you. And there was such a person. It was a woman who didn't like me. And uh, I thought I would die. She humiliated me in front of the other group. This was very early on, too. 
mm-hmm. like the third meeting we had had, and she just spewed uh, utter dislike of me. And I really thought I was going to die, and I even thought seriously about not rejoining the group the next week. But I did it, and it was the best thing I ever did. And I found out that you don't die from being disliked. For me, that's very important. I'm in a very narcissistic profession. That's great. Rita, thank you so much thank for joining you. us. This it's is my pleasure. pleasure. It's so thank wonderful. you very much. It's wonderful to look to talk to with intelligent people <laughs> who are also Likewise. articulate. Fool them mean, again. <laughs> yeah. That's just about it for this week's show. But before we go, it's time for this week's Aria. The beginning of the new year is a time for fresh starts and making resolutions. But instead of talking about the usual self-improvement goals, eat better, exercise more, stop emulating George Costanza, I'd like to talk about TV resolutions that all of us, myself included, might consider making this year. Resolution one, make as many Twitter jokes about the young Pope as possible. Just kidding. All of us are already doing that. Seriously, here's the real number one. Watch shows on unexplored parts of the TV spectrum. The New York Times recently created a series of maps that illustrate how divided the country is in terms of its TV watching. Based on Facebook data, they found that certain shows, Duck Dynasty, Criminal Minds, The Walking Dead, among others, were especially popular in rural areas of the country. Series such as Game of Thrones, Orange is the New Black, and The Daily Show spiked in populated urban areas. And a swath of the country defined as the Black Belt, that's rural and urban areas, mostly in the South with large African-American populations, tended to rally around empire, love and hip hop and scandal. As someone who lives in an urban area, I definitely exhibit more urban TV favoritism, though I have watched some of the shows in the other categories. But scanning these maps reminded me how important it is for all of us to stretch beyond our TV comfort zones. At some point this year, hopefully more than one point, try watching something you wouldn't normally watch or go even further than that. Try watching something you're pretty sure you're going to hate. You might find that you loathe Pawn Stars or Family Guy as much as you expected, but at least you'll be able to say that from a place of knowledge. As a professional TV writer, I'm often forced to watch things I might ordinarily bypass, but I'd like to make an even more active effort to dig into things I might otherwise ditch, both to broaden my horizons and maybe surprise myself by enjoying something I never thought I would. Resolution two, fill in at least a couple of TV blind spots. We all have TV blind spots, shows, or even entire genres that, despite having consumed a lot of television over the courses of our lives, are still absent from our fields of vision. I know I have a lot of them, and the more new shows keep coming, the harder it is to go back and pick up stuff that's been sitting on my to-do list for years. I'd like to carve out the time to go back and do that this year. I've only seen bits and pieces of the Mary Tyler Moore show, for example, and that seems wrong. I never watched Battlestar Galactica, and I know that's very wrong. I'm sure you have gaps that you'd like to fill in, too. Let's resolve to do that this year. Resolution three, be more skeptical of reboots. If the Gilmore Girls revival of 2016 taught us anything, it's this. We should have remembered what the Arrested Development revival of 2013 taught us. And what that taught us was we all need to take a deep breath and moderate our expectations when our beloved old shows decide to mount a comeback. It is rare for a TV show that's been off the air for a while to return to its full glory, even when every cast member is on board. Every time one of these reboots gets announced, people tend to flip their switch into fangirl mode and go completely nuts. 
But maybe if we moderate our expectations and stop announcing that the return of insert show here is giving us life, we'll be able to watch said reboots with a more reasonable set of expectations that actually allows us to enjoy them more. I hope this is possible because the Twin Peaks reboot is coming later this year and the prospect of seeing Agent Cooper talking to Diane again is giving me life. Shoot, just broke that resolution. Well, let's move on to my fourth and final resolution then, which is manage TV time more wisely. According to data compiled by FX, 455 original scripted series either streamed or aired during 2016. 455. There's no way anyone could possibly watch it all, even if they stopped working, paying attention to loved ones, eating, sleeping, and using the toilet. That's why it's more necessary than ever to manage your television time wisely. If you're not enjoying a show anymore after five seasons, it's okay to give it up. If you watch six episodes of a series that a friend recommended and you're just not into it, bail. There are so many really great shows, both new and old, to invest in that it no longer makes sense to watch anything purely out of a sense of duty. Unless you're giving up on Mad Men or the Americans too early, in which case, keep going and I mean it. At some point, you also should probably spend some time looking at the actual world rather than Westworld and breathe some fresh air rather than watching reruns of Fresh Prince. People always talk about moderation when they're making New Year's resolutions about their diets. Applying the same principles to your TV consumption make smart choices, don't binge on things that make you feel gross and disgusting, is a sensible thing to do. Admittedly, this is a harder resolution for someone like me to keep. It's my job and Matt's job and Gazelle's job to sometimes watch total garbage so we can advise you to move along and stay away from it. So maybe there's an additional resolution embedded in this one. I resolve to do an even better job of helping you decide what to steer away from and what to drive toward in 2017. That's it for this week's show. The Vulture TV podcast is produced by Jordan Bell. Laura Mayer is our director of production and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. I'm Gazella Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellefant. I'm Matt Zoller Seitz and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller Seitz. And I'm Jen Cheney and you can find me on Twitter at Cheney J. Thanks for listening. 